Good morning. Good morning. All right. That's good. That's uh, starting off on a good foot. Uh, thinking about, you know, us being in this space, we're in the gym, we're here, the auditorium. It reminds me of that Saturday Night Live clip. You all remember it about uh, Christopher Walken, explore the cowbell one? Explore this. We're exploring all of the space, TJ. We're going to explore the whole deal. So Derek already said this. We're starting this brand new series on the life of Paul. We're very excited about it. We've got home base for us is going to be the book of Acts. Like we'll spring out of that because we have a history of Paul's life in there. But we'll talk about different areas and around here and there about Paul. We're going to pick up with him today in Acts chapter 9, though he's first mentioned in Acts chapter 8, but just he gets us like two verses there. And then we really get into uh, Paul, the life of Paul in Acts chapter 9. So let's start by just reading Acts chapter 9. Now his story in the book of Acts alone three times. That is how important it is in the Bible that his story is mentioned three times. So we're going to read an introduction to him, and then we're going to go to the last time the story is told in the book of Acts, which is chapter 26, where he himself is presenting it before a whole court of people, and the primary person he's talking to is the king. So let's, let's read it. Saul, Paul, Paul, Saul, same name, Saul, Paul, is breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He goes to the high priest and asks for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, here we go. Here's him in his own words talking about what happened. I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of those journeys, one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For your word. So many powerful truths to hear that can help us in life, and so many incredible stories that are just amazing to read. It's just, it's not boring. And we thank you for that, that you speak to us in such clear ways. God, we've come together as a group, as a family here this morning, and we need to hear something corporately, but we also need to hear something individually, and the same thing happens every week. So, Lord, Whatever it is that we need to hear from you, help us that our hearts would be open and receptive to what you speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. Cruises have been in the news a lot recently, haven't they? Right? The cruise line, people running cruises. And so I was thinking about that, and I recalled that a number of years ago I saw something very interesting. It was the most popular questions that passengers ask of a cruise ship you know, as they board a ship or before they take it, whatever. And they fascinated me, so I'm going to ask those, I'm going to give you those questions that 
passengers asked on a cruise. Maybe you have taken a cruise before and you've asked a similar question. I'm wondering now, because this list was done about 10 years ago, I wonder if maybe some of these questions, given in light of the last couple of weeks, if they would change. Like maybe the question, most popular question would be, will the captain actually stay on board the ship <laughs> when it is sinking? It could be. But here, 10 years ago, here was the most popular question. What time is the midnight buffet? I really want to know what time the midnight buffet is. Will I get wet if I go snorkeling? Like if I go snorkeling in the water, will I actually get wet? Do I have to prepare for that? What do you do with the ice sculptures after they melt? I'm interested, do you put them in a case somewhere? Do you have any cruises to Las Vegas? Las Vegas. Are all the islands surrounded by water? Like are all of them surrounded by water? Does the crew sleep on board or do they go home at night? <laughs> the helicopter's coming and going. Uh, this last one, you have to think about this, but does the ship generate its own power? <laughs> you know, as opposed to an extension cord running, running out of Miami. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. So uh, as I'm thinking about this, here's the most popular questions that are asked to cruise lines. This is what they've compiled. What are the most popular questions that we ask about God? Uh, what are our questions? Does God exist? Can I know him? What is he like? What should I believe about God? Does God have a purpose and a plan for my life? These are very popular questions that we, that we read, that we think uh, about God. All of these questions are great, and every single one of them Paul had figured out in totality. All right, Before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had God figured out. Let's give a little background about this guy, Paul. Maybe some of you have heard of him. Maybe some of you is like, who is this guy? This guy is absolutely brilliant. When it comes to actually knowing the Bible and understanding theology, knowing the scriptures, this guy really doesn't have many people who stand on the same platform with him. He understands fully. Paul could stand up and recite major port. There's a, there's a pretty good chance that Paul could have stood if he was here today, stand here before all of us and just off the top of his head give you the first five books of the Bible, like the whole Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He could just recite the whole thing to you from memory. This guy intensely, and that's the important point, he intensely knew the Bible, understood the Bible, and had a very, very clear picture of God. His teacher was a guy named Gamaliel. This, this teacher was very famous, and you don't get to be one of his students. Paul was his student as a young age, at a young age. You don't get to be one of his students unless you're the head of your class. You following what I'm saying? You know, this is like getting into Harvard. So you, you don't, you don't, you're not getting in there, okay, unless you're the head of your class. And that's, that's the way it was with Paul. So Gamaliel was so knowledgeable of the Bible that they said he is the beauty of the law. He is the beauty of the Bible. And people even said that when Gamaliel died, they said, all reverence for the Bible, all reverence for the law has died with him. That's how highly he was esteemed. And Paul was like his top student. Bible scholars, this is the thing we need to know. Bible scholars in Paul's day were as much preacher, were as much lawyer as they were preacher. Paul was very well trained, like, like a lawyer, intensely trained as a lawyer. They would teach and train you how to debate in a question and answer style of debate that is called a diatribe in their day. That's what they call it. We still talk about that term today. And so he was very well trained in how to do that. Throughout the history of the Christian church, some of, most of actually, actually most of the best theologians that we have throughout church history have 
than lawyers. You might not know that. If you're sitting next to a lawyer here this morning and you know it, you might just want to turn to them and whisper, thank you for being so godly. Because theology, the best theology, everybody, throughout the history of the church, and and, and this will be argued some today, and that's only in the past couple hundred years, but throughout the history of the church, the best theology was always driven by logic and reason. Always driven by logic and reason. And so Paul thoroughly trained uh, this way. All right? Now, he is first mentioned, as I said a few moments ago, in Acts chapter 8. He gets just a couple verses there. And it's, it, the context of it is Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. He's being executed. He's being stoned. They're killing him. And at the end of it, right there at the end of it, when it says, you know, right before Stephen dies, we're told, you know, it was Paul is gathering everybody's coats up. Give me your coat. Give me your coat. Why is he? Give me your coat. Because I, I need you to rid, rid the earth of this guy as quickly as possible. Kill him. Heap stones on this guy. This guy does not deserve to live. And that's how we're first introduced to the great apostle Paul. Now, why was this happening? It's very important. Stephen, remember, okay, Paul has a very hard and clear picture after tremendous study of who God is. His picture of God is clear. His beliefs about God are solid and sure, right? And Stephen comes along and contradicts some, not all, no way all, but some of those beliefs, and it rocks Paul's world and a bunch of other people's world, and they say, rid the world of Stephen. We're told that Stephen, he so understood, like Paul, the Scriptures. He so understood the Old Testament, but he did not filter out the Scriptures about Jesus in the Old Testament, and he understood the whole piece together so well that he would stand up before great groups of people, and they would have these diatribes, these great debates, and they say nobody could stand against Stephen. So in this case, you're either going to beat him, you're going to join him, or take another option, just kill him. And that's what they chose to do. Let's just kill him. Let's get rid of this guy. Nobody could stand against him. It set Paul off in a rampage. Listen, why does he get set off in a rampage? We're told that he is ravaging the church. That word is used to describe somebody who comes in and destroys a whole city. Why is he so violent? Why is he so angry? Because Stephen was contradicting and challenging Paul's and many others, but let's focus on Paul, beliefs that were very well-studied beliefs about God, all right? So Paul begins to go to all these foreign cities seeking men and women to arrest them and to imprison them. He is filled with anger. Now, everybody on the outside, Paul is advancing. Like, as far as careers go, and this was a big career in Paul's day, right? He was like top dog in the town. I mean, he was Galatians says he was advancing far above everybody else. So on the outside, it looks like it's great. Like, if we want to equate this, like his legal career, he was stellar. He was running off the charts. This guy was in a very well-respected career. He was just flying. He was, he was going to be the next superstar on the outside. But on the inside, something different was going on, wasn't it? On the inside, he was deeply, deeply miserable. Deeply. We're told in Acts 9, verse number 1, that he was breathing out. Think about that. Look, look, think about that imagery. He was breathing out murderous threats. So what happens when you breathe out? Like the, the whole atmosphere around you is filled with this seething and this breathing. So this, this is what we see Paul going through. On the outside, it looks great. On the inside, he's absolutely miserable. And God knows that. And God begins to do something about that. And this is what we want to talk about. Why the radical transformation 
in Paul's life. This is a guy so discontent here, right? We'd have to agree he's extraordinarily discontent, breathing out murder threats. He's the same guy that later writes, from a miserable, stinking prison cell, I have learned to become content in all circumstances. He's just like at peace. He's totally content. So everything's going great over here. His career is advancing. He's totally discontent. Over here, the career, for all intents and purposes, looks like it's in the tank. And he's in a prison cell. And he says, I am totally and absolutely, utterly at peace and I'm content. What happened? What happened? This is what we want to talk about. The radical change in his life. I just have two points I want to talk about this morning. And the first one is this. If you would please consider writing it down on that little blue bulletin. This is really important. Invite God to goad you. Invite God to goad you. We're told in Acts chapter 26... That God says to Paul, he says, Paul, you're kicking against the goads. Now, what's a goad? Here's a goad. This is it. Farmers, it was a common expression back in the day. It probably didn't look just like this. This is the best I could do, all right? So a common expression there day. So a farmer, which in, it was an agricultural community, uh, you know, in Israel. There's so much agriculture. So, so very well-known expression in his world, right? So you would goad. Right? You would goad an animal, you'd goad an ox, you got a little point here at the end, and you try to get them to go your way. And some of the animals would just, you know, I mean, somebody puts this to your back, you're like, okay, <laughs> I don't need any more. But some, you know, sometimes um, an animal, or in this case, in Paul's case, as a human being, he didn't like the goading. Didn't like it, so he was kicking against it. I don't want this. There's good goading and get bad goading in life, isn't there? I mean, some of us have had people in our lives, friends, family, whatever, and they goad us. We have people at work. They goad us. They goad us, you know, for fun, or they goad us just to irritate us. You know what I'm saying? Well, I was thinking about this the other day. I, uh, I grew up right down the street from here. I grew up uh, near the intersection of Columbia Pike and George Mason Drive. Anybody familiar with that intersection that's right there? So I was driving up George Mason Drive the other day. If you have a child here, just cover their ears, right? And this is what you want to do because the kid's going to say, oh, that's okay to do. This is not okay to do. So just, I'm disqualifying, all right? Don't come to me later. If you have a kid, cover their ears right now. Stop it up. Don't let them hear. So we were about 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. We did it for a long period of time. We would go out onto George Mason Drive at night. Don't know where the parents were. We'd go out there on George Mason Drive at night. There'd be a group of us. And what we would do is we would lay down at night in the middle of the road of George Mason Drive. Okay? And the deal was is you would lay down with the traffic coming this way at night with your feet like this. And so you could see it coming. And we would challenge who could stay there the longest. All right, now it gets better because that's too easy. Then, then what we would do is, um, well, first we would lay forward, and then we would lay back. That got worse. The hardest thing is, is when you would lay with your back to the traffic, and you would have to see the cars coming at night with their headlights that way. And we would just goad each other. Who could go the longest? It was utterly stupid and insane. I was, I was, uh, I was talking to somebody after this, after telling that story, and they said, this is nothing. This guy told me him and his twin brother would go to the railroad tracks and they would go and lie underneath trains that weren't moving. And then when the trains took off, they would dare each other to see who could wait the longest when the train started picking up before they jumped out. Now that is cool, all right? So there's good goading and there's bad goading. And what we see here is God is goading. He's goading. He's goading for a purpose. And here's the reason I'm asking you to consider this, to invite the goading of God because God always has our best interests in mind. Paul was miserable. He knew he was miserable, but he didn't even know how miserable he was, and he didn't know where the answer was. He didn't know which direction that he should go in. And God says, hey, Paul, I know the direction, and I'm, I'm going to start poking you. Even if you have to start bleeding, I'm going to 
push you in that direction. When God starts goading us, some of us just like quickly go in that direction. Sometimes we don't want to go in that direction. No, this is not a way I want to go. I'm just saying to you, it is in your best interest because God always has your best interest in mind. Just say, God, please, I need you to goad me. Come on and goad me. Bring it on. Because the radical transformation in Paul's life that takes him from this seething person who is, who is not living to full all that God wanted to live, the difference was the goading of God. Now, how did that goading come? And that brings us to our second point. If you would please write this down. Invite God to contradict your beliefs about God. Invite God to contradict your beliefs about God. All right. Just work with me on this. This is not going to be something where you're going to feel like, yes, I want to do this. This point that I want to make here, the only other point I want to make here about the story of Paul, uh, can be troubling. Vitally necessary, but very, very troubling. Not easy. You would have to have the utmost of trust in God to invite God to contradict your beliefs in him. Because you're going to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm jumping off a cliff here. You'd have to really have faith in God in order to say, you'd have to have courage in God in order to say, God, I need you to contradict my beliefs. But this hard stuff is what leads to the good stuff. That's what we see in the life of Paul. The difficult stuff. So there was a movie out. I think it was about 20 years. I never know the name. I've never seen the movie. Everybody's always told me about the movie. Tom Hanks is in it, and there's like um, uh, the baseball, the women baseball or softball players. What is, the, what is that? Leader there. Okay. At some point, and I've never seen the movie, but people keep telling me about this scene. One of the lead female actresses says to Tom, this is too hard. I'm going home. And apparently he says back to her, the hard stuff is what makes it so good. Listen, we can talk about light and easy and fluffy and surface stuff all day long, everybody. But it's the hard stuff that we'll talk about today, about inviting God to contradict our belief. That hard, hard stuff, that's what brings the good stuff. That's what brought the good stuff for Paul. All right, so here we go. This, invite God to contradict your beliefs about him. So, listen, we've already made it clear, Paul after a tremendous amount of study, had a very clear picture and a very clear belief, set of beliefs, exactly who God was. So he's heading down the road to Damascus, breathing the murderous threats. And as he's walking there, the bright light comes. God says, Paul, quit kicking against the goads, right? Jesus appears to him. We're told that clearly. Paul says Jesus appeared to him. Later, Ananias says, hey, I know Jesus appeared to you. He writes about these things. Jesus appears to him. And you know what Paul says? What, is his, what, is his, what does he say back? He says, who are you? I know God like the back of my hand. Who are you? I've never met you before. Does that strike anybody as strange? Here we've got somebody who if anybody knows God, if anybody's got their beliefs right about God, it's the Apostle Paul. He's got it right, and he bumps into God. And he says, I've never met you before. I don't even recognize you. This is contradicting, not all, but a lot, a good portion of my understanding and my beliefs about who you are. It's a fascinating moment and a fascinating question. Who are you? I have never, ever met. Listen, everybody, look, listen. Paul was so convinced and so sure that his beliefs about God were right that he was willing to drag women out of their homes, right, and imprison them and put some of them to death. 
Look, you better be doggone sure you're right if you're going to start dragging a bunch of people out of their houses and put them to death, right? Wouldn't you say that? This guy is firm, positive. And why was he doing that? Because their beliefs about God were different and contradicting and challenging his beliefs about God, okay? That's what was going on. Couldn't handle it. Let's drag him out. And he was completely positive. He had it right. Paul had a very, very clear picture of who God was. His beliefs were solid and strong. God doesn't die on a cross. He doesn't die on a cross. God wouldn't come down and die on a cross. He filtered out all the things from the scriptures that he knows that talked about that because his own life and his own culture would not allow that through his filter. God does not die on a cross even though it was prophesied in the Testament and in the Bible that he knew so well. God does not eat with sinners. Sit down and have a meal. I mean, that's a very intimate situation in Paul's day. Jesus did that all the time. God does not do that. Would not do that. God is not full of grace. We're told that Jesus Christ was full of grace. No. God is full of wrath, anger, and judgment. That worked for Paul. Okay? He was sure of that. God does not hang on a cross. And if he does, he does not down, look down at the people who put him on that cross and say, Father, forgive them. Father, destroy them. Father, fuel the fires of hell with them. Yes. But not Father, forgive them. He was clear, and he was very, very sure of his picture of God. Now listen, you might want to write this down, because this is important. It's not on your outline. Paul's beliefs about God were made up of three things, and what I want to suggest to you today, quite emphatically actually, is that all of us in this room, our beliefs about God are made up of the exact same three things. So the first one is this, the Bible. It's made up of a combination of three things. The first thing is the Bible. Paul knew a lot of the Bible and, you know, some of us have some degree of knowledge of the Bible. It might even be minuscule, but in some way, shape, or form, a lot of people's beliefs about God, not everybody, but many, made up some way, shape, or form of the Bible. The second thing is, second thing in the combination is culture. His culture, which Paul was raised in, which he was perfectly suited for, he fits so well in his culture, and some of us fit well and some of us don't fit, but whatever, okay, it, may, it was made of his culture. That's the second very important point in this combination. And the third thing was his own heart. His own heart. So you, got those, you bring those three things together, and it just worked. And it worked for Paul, and it worked great. And he was completely comfortable, totally comfortable. His beliefs, everybody, were perfectly suited for who he was. He liked it. So when he meets God on the road to Damascus, Paul says, when he meets God, Paul says, who are you? Who are you? I've never met you before. But you, you don't make sense with my beliefs at all. Tim Keller, and I put this on your outline, who talks at time to times. You can get free podcasts by him, and he's got books. He does excellent. He will say more in three minutes than I will in the next 15 on this subject. So I just highly encourage that. Here's a statement that he says that falls in, into the subject we're talking about right now. He says, unless, everybody, you have a God that you allow to tell you things you don't want to be true. You'll never be changed when he tells you things too good to be true. That's actually quite deep. Unless you have a God that you allow to tell you things that you don't want to be true, you'll never be changed when he tells you things too good to be true. 
Paul could not change, though he desperately needed to change, because he was kicking against the contradictions that God himself was giving to Paul about his beliefs about God. He was kicking against it. I don't like this. I reject it. The whole idea of kicking against the goads is he was kicking for quite some time. It's implied in that. This wasn't just a one-time event. He had been quite some time. God had been goading him. He says, I don't want to go this way. I refuse to see this. I know Stephen shot me down. He proved me wrong. I don't care. I am not. I refuse to believe this way. It's outside of my picture of God. His belief about God, he believed in a God he wanted to believe in. Because it fit him. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about God and why do you believe those things about God? And then what happens when God challenges your beliefs? What happens? When Jesus Christ walked the earth, it was a constant contradiction to people in his culture about their beliefs about God. What happened? Listen, would we, would we be so foolish to say, oh, yes, that was 2,000 years ago, and now we can see, and he contradicted. But you know, hey, I really don't have a problem. I, I've been in church a lot of years, and man, I, read, I believe the Bible, I believe the Word, and I understand Jesus. And you know, I just, sometimes I have a hard time living out the Christian life, but I pretty much got the beliefs part down. There's no contradiction necessary anymore. Oh, 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 really? We have to invite this contradiction from God. Let's talk about culture for just a second. Let's talk about American culture. What do we love about the Bible? What parts, general American culture, do we say, yes, this is beautiful. I love it, right? We love mercy and grace, Jesus, don't we? We love, in America, we love mercy and grace. We love forgiveness. Pray for your enemies, forgiveness. You, you, hear, you hear people say, maybe you might even say this yourself. You might even say to yourself, I understand this. Because I know a number of us do. I believe in a God who accepts everybody no matter what they believe in, right? Mercy and grace, Jesus. It's just all about, I believe in a God who is going to accept anybody no matter. That's what our culture, our culture celebrates that. Our culture celebrates this fact that my God wouldn't allow anybody to go to hell because we're into the mercy and grace, Jesus. We love that, right? We don't like the portion where it says Jesus Christ is the only, only way. Yeah, it's a problem in our culture. Um, I believe in a God who would never place boundaries on anybody's life sexually. Mercy and grace, God. It all, it's, it, understand? It all just, it, it goes. We believe in a culture where people run around with t-shirts that say Jesus is my homeboy. Right? It's my homeboy. I love the easygoing Jesus, the mercy and grace Jesus. It fits, yes. But some of that other stuff about hell and judgment and damnation, oh, come on. That's a little bit socially regressive. It's a little bit out of date, right? All right, that's America. Let's leave here. Let's take a trip somewhere else. Let's go to another culture. So we go to the other culture, and what do they say? They say, you know, the hell and the judgment and damnation is beautiful. I love it. I embrace it. Those are the portions of the Bible that are the best. But there's other portions of the Bible that I have major problems with. The sexual part is okay. It's a little bit loose. and needs to be tightened up significantly, right? That's what other cultures say. But it's okay. I'll let it go. But this whole thing about forgiveness and praying for your enemies is an embarrassment. It's ridiculous, and I reject it. Now, here we are. 
Does anybody want to stand up and say, yep, our culture is primo culture. We, of all the cultures in the world for the past, whatever, up 10 years, we got it right, and every other culture has it wrong. The Bible transcends all cultures. Transcends it. Some people make this argument. They say, ah, the Bible is just this book written from its culture, right? Listen, anybody ever says that to you? Can I give you a word of advice here or just, just a little nugget to say? If it totally fit the culture in which it was written in 2,000 years ago, then why did they put Jesus on the cross and kill him? Why did they take Christians and persecute them severely? Sorry, it doesn't work. It's outside of its culture. That is another proof that the Bible is God's word because it transcends. Here's the thing, everybody. The Bible both fits. There's all cultures. cultures there's some portions of the Bible that people say, I love this. Right? And there's pieces of the Bible that every culture says, I got a problem with this. This is a problem for me. We must invite God in order for us to be radically changed and become the people who God wants us to be, a people of purpose, a people who live out the plan of God, a people who are free. In order for us to do that, the radical change happens when we invite God to goad us about our own beliefs that we have about God and to never become comfortable to say, you know what, I got it. I don't need my beliefs about God changing. I have arrived. Now, I know none of us would ever say that, but there's a lot of times in my life that I function as if that is true. And if I really want all that God, if I really, really believe in the Bible, if I really believe in the scriptures, I will aggressively go to God and say, God, I have enough faith, I have enough courage in you, I have enough trust in you, and I'm going to say, God, challenge and contradict those beliefs that I have about you. Because I can guarantee everybody right now, right now, there is something that I believe about God this morning that is wrong. There is something, unless one of you is God, that you believe about God this morning that is wrong. And the only way, everybody, for us to be radically changed by God and to keep progressively moving and allow the power of the Spirit of God to move in our life is for us to invite God to contradict us in such a way. It's a scary thing. It's a disturbing thing. But it's the tough stuff that brings us to the best stuff. This is what we find in the Scriptures. All right. When was the last time you asked God to challenge your beliefs about him? Have you ever thought about that? Let's go back to Paul. Let's catch up with him in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He's 20, 25 years past the Damascus Road experience, maybe 30 or so. And you know what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12? He says these words, everybody. Check it out. This is a guy who probably knows the Bible better than all of us in this room combined. He says this. He says, we only see God through a glass darkly. Right now, we only know in part. One day we will know the whole. I don't know God fully. I don't have all of my beliefs about God 100% correct. I only know part right now. And all the way until the day I die, all the way to the day I die, I'm still not going to have it 100% correct. But what God says to me in his word is, I have to keep coming and saying, challenge me, contradict me, because I am imperfect, and I only know in part. And whenever I get set in a place, everybody, that I say, oh, no, we're good, 
Okay, I think I got it. I just got to get, you know, kind of my behavior right, but I'm good. Okay? Trouble. That's where Paul was. All right. Let's think about this for a second. Your great-grandkids, if you have them, what are they going to be embarrassed about, about your beliefs in God? Right? What are they going to be embarrassed about? They're going to be embarrassed about something. You don't know what it is, but they're going to be embarrassed. You know why we know that? It's a proven fact. Because you're embarrassed about the things that your great-grandparents believed and their beliefs about God. You know what my great-grandparents believe? My great-grandparents believe that if you drank alcohol or you smoked or you went to the movies or you danced, you were on, my friend, the highway to hell. Straight. No tolls along the way. Express lane. Phew. And we look now and say, oh, man, that's embarrassing. I believe that. Except for the dancing part. I'm a terrible dancer. <laughs> and I'm figuring if God saw me dance, he'd say, you're not coming into heaven. This is, this is, uh, this is, this is so terrible. That's beside the point. Okay. The deal is this. There is something that we believe and we feel it is so right. And we're wrong. And we know that from the Bible. And we know that from history. And we know that because we're imperfect people. And the only way that we're going to get around that is to come to God with all of our hearts and say, challenge me and contradict me. Show me where I'm wrong so I can become completely free in you. I only want to give you one example, okay? Because I don't want to box in your thoughts. I want you to really take this, this thought here from the scripture and to really think about it and to pray about it, right? So without trying to box in your thoughts too much, I just want to give one. I've had, I could give you lots of examples. God has contradicted my beliefs so much in the last 25 years. And it's been wonderful and it's been exhausting. It's been troubling and it's been fantastic. It's, been, it's, it's all the tough stuff, but it's led to the good stuff. I just want to give you one. I grew up uh, in a church where uh, it was said, you know, in, in, in this church, I remember it so clearly, never pay attention. Now, I don't want to get into the doctrine of the Trinity, so that's not, that's not the point of this, all right? But it was said, don't ever pay attention to the Holy Spirit. So you got the Father, you got the Son, and you got the Holy Spirit. And they said, never pay attention to the Holy Spirit, okay? Even though in Acts chapter 1, we have Jesus ascending and the Holy Spirit descending and becoming the main player on this earth and in our lives, right, in the, in the Trinity, right? Uh, never pay attention because the Holy Spirit only points you towards Jesus. So, act, like, ignore that the Holy Spirit's there and focus on Jesus. Actually, that was said in the church I grew up in. And that was, that was ingrained in my mind. So I had something happen to me. I was working, this is like 24, 25 years ago, I guess. I was working for UPS as a package car driver. I delivered hundreds and hundreds of packages every day working for UPS. And I needed to get a gum graph. Now, some of you might know what a gum graph is. For those of you who don't know what a gum graph is by a dentist, don't ask. You don't want it, pray that you never have one. Okay? So I go into the dentist, yes, you're going to have to have this gum graph. Okay, uh, do I have to take a day off, off work? No, 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 no reason for a day off work. You come in here, first thing in the morning, 7 o'clock, 7.30, boom, boom. We're going to have you right out. You're going to go and you're going to work. I said, I'm a UPS guard driver. I have physical work all day. Ah, whatever, do it. So I come in that morning, bright and early, sit in that chair for an hour, and oh, they, you know, they, they did that work on me, which I just did not like at all. I get done. I can't talk. You know, you're all messed up with the stuff, and they're asking all these questions, and I, I can't talk, and I'm in pain, and I go to leave. Here's the last word they said to me as I'm walking out there. They said, now, whatever you do, do not do anything physical all day long. 
we, we talked about this. We thoroughly talked about this. I said, you know, you, you know, what could happen if I did that? You could bleed out and die. Wonderful. Well, I didn't have a choice. I, I, I had to go. So I ended up going to work, and, you know, I get through the day, and then I tell them I'm going to need to take some days off to rest up from this thing. So, okay. So, I take, so three days, I sit at home. I sit at home. I'll never forget. We had this blue chair in our living room. I sit in this blue chair. And Krista is, she, she's at work. We have no kids at this point, so it's totally there. And God begins to hammer away at me on my beliefs about him, particularly on my beliefs about the Holy Spirit. And basically what God was saying to me is you're being very disrespectful to me. The Holy Spirit in the scriptures is so clear. We're told that what the Holy Spirit produces in our life is the Holy Spirit produces in our lives love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. Nine things that I desperately needed, okay? And I'm totally ignoring. And God, because you're totally disrespectful, and I said, well, wait a minute. And so God and I went at it for like three days straight. I began to talk to Krista. I was real, very reluctant to talk to Krista about it. I talked to Krista, and she said just what I thought. She said, you're a blasphemer. You're going to go to hell for saying these things. You know God began to, ch- you know, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is God. And it, it, therefore, since the Holy Spirit is God, worthy to be prayed to and to be praised and to be given attention. The Holy Spirit is the primary. And I don't want to get too far in this, but the Holy Spirit is the primary. I mean, the Holy Spirit is what helps us to live the, Christ, the life that Christ wants us to live. That's it. And here I was totally ignored. But this was for you. You might be hearing, oh, man, that's nothing to me. All right. That's nothing to you. But for me, it was huge, and it radically changed my life. What's yours? What is yours? Some of you know what it is, and some of you have no clue. But this is where all of us should go to God, because these contradictions don't stop until the day we die. Who am I to stand up here and say, well, I understand Paul. He only saw him in part, but that's Paul. I really got God figured out on all my beliefs. All my beliefs are correct. That would be phenomenally arrogant and ignorant to say that. In order for us to experience the wonderful and radical change that God wants to do in our lives on a continuous basis by the power of the Holy Spirit is to consistently, consistently go to God and say, God, take your big stick and goad me challenge me on my beliefs about you constantly so I can keep ever, ever pressing on towards that mark, that higher calling in Christ Jesus. This is the hard stuff, but it leads to the good stuff. Never stop inviting God to challenge you because this is where it really gets good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. It is so powerful. It is so amazing. God, I feel so often in my own life, and I bet others in this room feel the same way. I just feel like I get to the point where I say, okay, no, no, I got it. I don't need to do anything else. Can we just, just like take it easy for now until the day I die? And I just want to be set and comfortable in my beliefs. Lord, you tell me, in order for me to press on in you, that I've got to trust you enough. I've got to be willing to get uncomfortable enough that I say, Father, goad me in my beliefs about you. Father, help each one of us here this morning to really, really consider inviting you to contradict and to challenge our beliefs that we might be continuously, radically changed 
for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Bless each one of us, God, in this journey. In your holy name, amen.